much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Maybe coming back to the podcast. Uh, initially, the Twitch stream, now finally on the podcast feed. Oh, yeah. All right. Benjamin Bratton's work spans philosophy, computer science, and geopolitics. He is a professor of philosophy of technology and speculative design at the University of California, San Diego. He is the director of Antikythera, a think tank on the speculative philosophy of computation. He is also a professor of digital design at the European Graduate School, as well as a visiting professor at SciArc and NYU Shanghai. He is the author of several books, including The Stack on Software and Sovereignty from MIT Press in 2016. When I encountered that book, I read both The Stack and Inventing the Future back to back in the same year. Oh. And that just so thoroughly shaped the conversations within my peer group. It was tremendously formative. His other books include The Revenge of the Real, Politics for a Post-Pandemic World from Verso Press in 2021. We happen to have read this in the Do Not Research book club. Thoroughly enjoyed that one. That's on the, I think, the second or third syllabus. Highly recommend picking that up. And additionally, you are the author of The Terraforming in 2019. And I think I saw a tweet that you are now, you're republishing and updating The Terraforming. Is that correct? I, I am, yeah. That that version of the book that you're speaking to was written as a, a kind of manifesto for a design research think tank that I was running or co-running with Nikolai Boyzhev at the Strelka Institute in Moscow. The institute as a whole closed down as soon as the war, as soon as the war started, um, and with it, the book went out of print. And that program itself generated such a huge amount of work, um, ideas, and, and so forth that MIT Press invited me to sort of revisit, revisit the manuscript, re revisit the book, and to update it, both to sort of reflect on the arguments that were made in the book and also to, to tally some of the work that had been done. So that's one of my current book projects now, yeah. I feel like there's been so much advancement in the field of geoengineering specifically. Are there new chapters, new topics being added to the book? Because between 2021 and 23, I feel like the entire field has undergone some significant yeah. transformations. Yeah, it has. And, and I should say that before your, your listeners hang up, all of us, as soon as they hear the word geoengineering, <laughs> that I think for us, the, the way we tried to sort of rescue the term, um, and perhaps totally unsuccessfully, was to think of geoengineering not as a portfolio of weird Dr. Evil technologies, um, <laughs> but rather to, ex rather to expand the concept to include any kind of deliberate intervention within planetary systems that, that has planetary scale effects. And so there could be, you know, highly technological forms of geoengineering, such as direct air carbon capture. And there could be very uh, passive kinds of geoengineering, let's say, like ensuring that the Amazon rainforest will return to a pre-Columbian footprint so that it becomes a carbon sink once again. The, the effect in terms of this may be very similar. And so whether or not something is highly technological or not technological is less the point. I, I think it's important, at least for us, to couch it in this way in relationship to the terraforming thesis itself, which in a nutshell went like this, that what we call the Anthropocene or Capitalocene or whatever you want to call it, needs to be recognized as, as having had terraforming scale effects, that we are living inside the terraforming now. Hmm. It may have, you think it began 50 years ago, 200 years ago, 10,000 years ago with agriculture. It doesn't, you know, in geological time, it, it's all the same. But that this terraforming in which we, you know, that has produced us, each of us is, is an output of this, of this terraforming, was largely planless and, and not deliberate. It was, it was an emergent effect of a number of smaller smaller systems. 
So that's one terraforming. The second terraforming would be the realization that no matter what we do, and you know, again, putting in question who the we is, and of course, no matter what we do at this point, we all go full Kaczynski tomorrow. <laughs> that, we'll, that that human civilizations, in plural, will continue to have terraforming scale effects over the course of the next centuries. And so, right. in a way, it's not optional. And then the third one, which was really the focus of the book and the program, would be: well, given these, what is the what would be the terraforming that is deliberate? that is compositional, that does understand and take as a basis of its approach that the most effective and viable uh, responses to anthropogenic climate change will be equally anthropogenic, will be equally anthropogenic. And if we sort of embrace, rather than fear, but rather embrace the artificiality that is necessary to compose a viable planetarity, this shifts a lot of the conversations around you know, relationships between nature and technology, politics and governance, society and ecology, so forth and so on. And so for us, to, just to square the circle, geoengineering in that, in that expanded sense would be a name for all the ways in which that third terraforming could try to compose and plan some of these outcomes. Now, you're exactly right, however, that things like direct air carbon capture have been widely uh, you know, there's huge amounts of capital going into that, which I think is largely a net positive, though, you know, whether or not that it ends up being a kind of placebo investment mm. is, is, is hard to say. But even on those, that portfolio of technologies, I think it's important to recognize that there's certain kinds of geoengineering that we probably should be doing absolutely as fast as we possibly can by any means necessary, such as, yes, you know, pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere so that decarbonization has a chance to actually to sort of put tilt things in our favor and other kinds of geoengineering that you hope you never have to do like solar radiation management. Right. And so given that, I just it do, it doesn't make sense to think about one being pro or anti geoengineering as if it's a single knob that you can turn more or less. It's considerably more nuanced than that and I, and I think those are some of the the ways in which we try to explore the idea in the terraforming program and, and will be developed further in that book. Mm. On this question of artificiality what you alluded to before, this question of we. Your current research project is called Theory and Design in the Age of Machine Intelligence. Mm -hmm. I think there's a, I mean, one of the things that has been most interesting to me in terms of the conversations unfolding around AI is the possibility to do climate intervention and climate planning. Maybe you can tell us to start just a bit about your current research project. Yeah, gosh, there's a few of them. Um, so I'll try to, I'll try to keep them, uh, try to keep them aligned. But on the main point that you're suggesting about this relationship between AI and climate, um, I, I think there's there's ways in which this could get talked about in ways that are really superficial and uh, sort of we'll, we'll add some more AI to it and um, we'll just make the system smarter and it'll all work out. And then there's ways of thinking about it that I think are are probably more more fundamental and perhaps more profound. One of these would be to foreground the understanding that the very idea of climate change itself is a an epistemological accomplishment of planetary scale computation that without the satellite sensors the surface uh, surface sensors oceanic temperature sensors and most importantly massive supercomputing simulations of climatic past present and futures against which the models are our projective models of the year 2050 are derived the idea of climate change is just not is just not a, it's not available 
the concept of the planetarity that arrives from our understanding of climate change in this way, our understanding of anthropogenic agency as a whole, arguably the very idea of the Anthropocene itself that comes from a reckoning with the implications of anthropogenic climate change. These are all first and second order effects of planetary computation as what I call an after Stanislaw Lem, an epistemological technology, one that discloses how the world works to us. And so to approach your question, what is the relationship between AI and climate? I, I would want to first begin with the understanding that we can only have this conversation because of planetary computation and that it inevitably, it inevitably frames that. I, I think the, the issue of the r- relationship between AI and climate science is one that's very important in terms of the ways in which we can model and measure planetary systems, understand planetary boundaries quantify and predict and simulate the effects of different kinds of in, different kinds of interventions and ultimately in principle become the basis of a reorganization of both industrial and information economies in relation to the implications of those simulations which may sound a strange thing to say but look climate politics as it exists now is to the extent to which it's based on we want to prevent the implications of these models of what the year 2050 or the year 2070 is going to be like. We have a model of what 1.5 Celsius or 3, 3 degrees Celsius is going to look like. The, this future must be prevented. Right. This future must be prevented. And so we want to mobilize a new planetary politics around the implications of a computational simulation. Right. That's, you know, it'd be maybe difficult to convince Extinction Rebellion, that that's in fact what they're up to, that they they basically have put computational simulation at the center of an emergent planetary politics. But in essence, that's that's what it is. And so to a certain extent, the way to answer your question is not how could this happen hypothetically, but rather, how can we make more explicit the ways in which this is a precondition of everything we've been doing all along? I think I'm putting these two things in conversation. Certain technologies like geoengineering, specifically maybe solar radiation management, and comparing that to AI. Because I'm interested in what is the teleology of AI. This is what I'm trying to grasp. Hmm. And when I read the stack in 2016, I was having conversations with my peers that, you know, Instagram turned every artwork into a photograph. That was very straightforward. We knew that Twitter had turned all journalists and politicians into influencers. Diving deeper into these conversations, it became very clear that platforms were assuming roles and tasks typically reserved for the state. And that's a total transformation Mm -hmm. of the conversations we were having previously that all of a sudden looked Mm -hmm. very superficial. And um, I'm seeing a similar thing now with AI. My entire Mm -hmm. peer group are artists and journalists and so on, and they're over-indexing their own interests in many cases. We see people using (laughs) AI to make cool pictures. We're worried it's going to automate journalism. And I'm trying to think beyond this that what is the political economic implication of this technology? So when I juxtapose that against geoengineering, one could imagine that if Nevada decides to undergo solar radiation management and they spray silver or aluminum particles into the air, there's no way that that technology is going to be constrained to the artificial borders. And, you know, probably California is going to get pretty mad about that. And I'm wondering what the teleology of AI is, if there is something maybe um, the easiest example is intellectual property that AI does not necessarily respect the intellectual property protected by certain states and not others. So different models will scrape the web and they'll take it from different people. And one sovereignty may not abide by the you know arbitrary rules of another. Is there something 
intrinsic to AI that extends beyond our 20th century conception of states? It's an excellent set of questions that you asked. So I'm gonna, I'll try to break it down into a couple smaller ones and sure, sure. maybe build it back up from there if that's all right. The, the relationship between planetary computation and jurisdiction and Westphalian nation states and borders and, and stuff is, is, is one of the key arguments from that book, which is, you know, I wrote now 10 years ago. That key argument was basically that, as you observed, that cloud platforms, and even back then it was at least, obviously, at least to me, were taking on more and more roles of traditionally assigned to nation states, identity, cartography, currency, and that they were operating at a, but operating at a transnational scale. And in many cases had, you know, market valuations that were greater, you know, many, many orders of magnitude greater than the GDPs of, of many nations. And clearly this represented a kind of shift in the underlying technologies of governance. It also suggests it made very clear in ways that I think political science is just now catching up with all politics and all governance is to a certain extent technologically determined by what it's possible for states to sense and model and recursively respond to. But the inverse was also true. And I think this is the part where I, I tried to make the case emphatically then, but I, I think it's a little more obvious now that also states evolve into and through whatever those technical means that are available at their disposal, and they always have. And so to certain that clouds, states are evolving into cloud platforms as much as cloud hmm. platforms are evolving into states. Hmm. I think you see this, you know, think of China's Digital Belt and Road Initiative, think of U.S. transnational jurisdiction over intellectual property rights, think of Estonia's e-citizenship. I mean, as many examples as you want to kind of go down, this extension of state services into cloud-based state services has fundamental implications for the spatial and temporal distribution of what states are and what they do. Okay, so the correlation between and your example of solar radiation management leaking across borders is, is obviously true, right? The old Carl Sagan line, molecules don't have passports, they don't move across this. And to a certain extent, neither do bits. And, and until they do, until they do, until there's some kind of artificial intervention, like a great firewall of China that actually hmm. does try to claim to derive sovereignty from claiming jurisdiction over data. And this is important. It's not just that, that it, it's claiming that we have sovereignty and therefore we have jurisdiction over this data. The sovereignty itself is derived from that claim, which is also, I think, a very interesting an interesting shift. But let me speak to AI, which is, I think, where you wanted to head with this. I think to cut to the chase, I think there's one way of looking at this in the short term and a little bit more zoomed in. It's a reasonable set, important set of questions about what will be the impact that widespread use of large foundational models will have on the functions of states as we know them, on the competitive adversarial relationship between states. Clearly, the, dynam the adversarial dynamics between US and China increasingly are being fought over who has the resources and capacities to build their own hemispherical stack you know, preventing chips manufacturing and other kinds of expertise and minerals and so forth, that you may want to put it this way, that the multipolarization of geopolitics that we've seen over the last five or 10 years, and the multipolarization of planetary computation, of it segmenting into a kind of US stack, a China stack, a European stack, and so forth. These phenomena not only track each other, I argue that they're in fact the same thing, hmm. that they're the same thing, that as governance becomes imminent in the cognitive infrastructures of planetary computation, 
that the production of governing capacity is the same thing as the production of that infrastructural capacity. Okay, now to the to the art and culture aspect of this. Well, let me just say, like, I think if you zoom out further at, let's say, like a hundred years time span or a thousand year time span, and you look at a moment over the period from the middle of the 20th century to what be the middle of the 21st century, let's say, the emergence of planetary computation and then the emergence of planetary machine intelligence, all appearing rather suddenly in the broad scheme of things in terms of biological history or geological history, I think that raises a different set of questions about what's going on uh, and what are we living through uh, and what are we creating. And to a certain extent, how inevitable or evitable the emergence of machine intelligence may have been, which is, which is I, I, again, I think that as you telescope in and out, the kinds of questions that it's relevant to ask, I think, become different. Yes. So let me zoom all the way back. Let me zoom all the way back into, I think, the more immediate questions you're asking about art and culture production and shifts in labor dynamics and the rest of this as well. I, I like this line that you said about that Instagram turned all art into pictures. And, and it, it did. I mean, the sense to which like Spotify turns all albums into a database in which everything is, pre- everything is in the present, right? Nothing, all music is both old and new. It's just, it doesn't matter. It's just all database time. I think even the next step is, I think, recognition that what AI does is it turns all art and culture into training data, yes, which is not necessarily the same thing as image. And I think one of the things you're seeing now, which is very interesting, is the way in which people who who are creative to produce text and like and write, like I do, or produce images or sounds or other kinds of things that are through which we communicate symbolically to one another beginning to realize that this question of the cultural production as a form of training data is not just something that happens after the thing is produced. It's not just I produce a cultural object and then it goes on the shelf as training data, but that the training data dynamic is now increasingly part of the creative process. There's a self-reflexivity by which people are understanding the thing that they're creating in relationship to the model that the thing will be informing. And how do you influence the model, relate to this model, evade the model, poison the model, poison the data? All these kinds of things are increasingly part of this. Now, one way to think about this is, I think is very complex, and uh, the IP issues are obviously complex as well. One way to think about this, and I'm not necessarily suggesting it's the only appropriate way to think about this, but one way to thinking about this is that it might make us a bit more suspicious of the idea of personal data uh, and hmm. personal individual authorial production in relationship to the larger model in the same way that the pandemic and the ways in which information about the spread of a virus or the distribution patterns of, of contagion I think made it clear to everyone, we all became sort of amateur epidemiologists for a year or so, that the idea of data as being, in, data itself isn't individuated, does, isn't really individuated in the same way in which your story about California and Nevada, of trying to keep geoengineering inside the, bound, the artificial boundaries of Nevada. In the context, the epidemiological context of the pandemic, when you realize that, you know, my exhale is your inhale, your exhale is my inhale, like who's event is this and and the borders of the individual as the basis to try to identify the base unit of data doesn't really work. And we may be seeing a similar kind of thing in relationship to the way in which creative people think about the relationship to the model, that the construction of the model 
the way in which the model then becomes a resource and a basis to produce further work. Because the model is not only the thing that the work goes into after it's made, it's also the thing through which the work gets made in the first place. You use the model to make new work. And so one way of thinking about this is is that things are shifting towards a kind of mode of production that is both totally centralized in that these are being run through a handful, single digit, you know, increasingly a single digit number of large models, perhaps that's one future, but also totally decentralized in the sense that there's access and ability to both produce with this model and to train it in different kinds of ways. But I, I guess my answer is a little bit more zoomed out than maybe you, you were intending, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to think about the emergence of models as both the medium, both the tool with which culture is made the medium through which culture is distributed, and the place to which culture is, in essence, exported around this work. And then I think this goes to the question of, of how models become governing tools and governing technologies as well, of which the cultural form is just a, a key example. So I think that's exactly right. A big part of my question is, what is the appropriate scope to have these conversations through? And we can slide between the 10-year frame or the 100-year frame or the 1,000-year frame I've been in a lot of conversations with different peers over the last few months, and I feel like there's two kind of competing metaframes that are at work right now. One of them is a teleology of history, the Hegelian or Marxist understanding of history that we progress to feudalism, followed by capitalism, then socialism, and eventually communism. And there's this other competing theory now that human society is organized as kingdoms into states and then into networks. Depending on the scope that you're talking about uh, within the 100-year time frame, I find that to be very improbable. My position has always been that states are actually incredibly resilient. I have, uh, I think, a beef with a neoliberal theory of money and value that Mm -hmm. for states to Mm -hmm. provision themselves and to direct their economies, a centralized governing authority is uh, absolutely necessary even for the enormous cost of some of these technologies to undergo any sort of geoengineering or terraforming or what have you, that really does require monetary sovereignty. I don't think that is possible to accomplish through the private sector. But the idea that we are going to break apart the existing structure of nation states within a thousand year scope, I'm, I'm willing to entertain that within like a very long time frame for sure. You know, we're kind of trapped in this Fukuyama conversation that is the the terrible Mm -hmm. hangover of the 20th century. And I'm just feeling like there's some type of political economic conversation that necessarily surrounds these transformations of society. I think, as you said, in this excellent lecture at Trust in Berlin, our good friends from Trust called Inhumanity Rising was the title of the lecture, that politics and technology circumscribe one another. So I'm trying to understand where these things fit into each other and, um, yeah, how that kind of relates to some of the previous frames of, you know, the existence of states, provisioning your economy, and whether AI Mm -hmm. strengthens that thesis or if it becomes the crowbar through which it begins to disintegrate. The question of history and teleology is, uh, is an interesting one, and it's also one that looks very different depending on the scale by which you look through it. But there's also, I, I think you begin to see patterns of convergence that cannot really be explained just as a form of accidents. That, you know, we see examples of, of what's called convergent evolution in biological systems mm. all over the place. That there are that very similar kinds of phenotypes and animal and biological morphologies emerge from completely different kinds of niches. 
you know, famous, you know, that you have crabs, for example, evolve lots of times, and you just have certain kind of conditions, and you get crabs, and they're actually not related to one another. And so how do you explain this as just purely accidental? There has to be some kind of not teleology is the way, not the way I would put it. I would call it path dependency. That is okay. like if you, if you, if you have a certain set of circumstances that, you know, each one kind of scaffolding on the other, like if then, and then you build this and then you build that and then you build that. Every time you're doing it, you're kind of constraining the frame of possibilities to a certain degree and that you, you may have outcomes that are more common to one another than, than would have been otherwise. And, and so there may be ways of sort of thinking through this. Or another classic example is, you know, octopus and human intelligence. That the, the, the earliest common ancestor between cephalopods and humans was not only before, was so, so far in the past that neither one of these creatures started on a path that anywhere near would have gotten you know, to the kinds of intelligence that they exhibit now. And so both cephalopods and you know, tetrahedral body plan mammals became intelligent in different ways, but through completely different paths. And to a certain extent, anatomically, neurologically, there are significant differences between the ways in which mammals and cephalopods are intelligent, particularly relation to their skin, the central nervous system, and all kinds of things. But there's a loss, also a lot that's in common at a neurological level, at a cognitive level, other kinds of things as well, which in terms of the relationship between vision and light, and processing these kinds of things, which suggests that at this really zoomed out perspective, teleology might not be the right word, but a certain kind of path dependency that suggests once certain conditions are met, that the next thing, certain next things are likely to happen in different kinds of ways. Now, it gets tricky and dangerous when you zoom in from that scale into the scale of social history, because it's easy to kind of take models like this and project them on social and cultural history and sort of apophenically find patterns that aren't really there and that can retroactively naturalize or justify phenomenon or outcomes that are in fact highly contingent and highly arbitrary in, in ways that which you, you would want to avoid. The other end of the spectrum, there's probably a lot of part, I think part of the, the longstanding residue of anthropocentric humanism is the presumption that the reality in which we live, the worlds that we construct are entirely the results of our cultures, entirely the results of human societies, that we have complete control over this remaking of it, and that to think otherwise is, is in a certain sense uh, offensive. One of my favorite historians is at the University of Chicago. His name is Deepesh Chakrabarti, and different parts of his work I think relevant here. But one of the key ideas is he asks us to think about history at three different levels that there's a social history, which is sort of the history of Hegel and Marx and the dialectic and the machinations of money and currency and states and wars and different kinds of material economies and so forth, which is relatively new, right? This is, we're talking about something that's maybe 10,000, you know, 10,000, 50, 40,000 years. And in the modern sense, it's a matter of centuries. Then there's, then there's a bio, for Chakrabarty, then there's a biological history and, and a, it's a species history that goes back 150,000 years, 200,000 years, 3 million years, the first humans. And then there's a geologic history, which is the structures of the planet and the preconditions by which complex life emerges on the planet that sets the conditions for things that happen subsequently, subsequently to this. And he offers this structure as a way of interpreting the implications of the Anthropocene. And the way in which he asks us to do this is, is to, instead of seeing the Anthropocene as a kind of giant text, as the, a kind of a framework by which 
the internal models of our cultures and our societies have sort of projected themselves on the world in such a way that if we can just recalibrate our culture, that we will remake the world in the image. Because of course, our culture is causing the reality, this kind of Lamarckian <laughs> socio-constructivism. You want to do it the other way around. You want to understand that all of our cultural processes, capacity for language, capacity for thought, capacity for any of these kinds of things in complex organizations are fundamentally embedded within biological and geological histories that not only precede us and make us possible, but are now being artificialized by us in ways that are, are, are unprecedented. So at the, at the level in which I think we're talking about, it's, un, it's not really clear to what extent is large-scale AI, the transformation of planetary computation into an intelligent cognitive infrastructure, to what extent is that a path dependency that will almost inevitably produce certain kinds of economies, political configurations, effects on population dynamics. Does it, you know, we end up with fewer people, with more people, with more war, with less war. Is, is there a way in which if, if you construct this as a planetary infrastructure, that inevitably there's going to be certain kinds of outcomes that the best we can hope for is to kind of steer them a little bit while we still can. And really what we should be anticipating is that all of these 18th century institutions like states and parliaments and armies and the rest of this are essentially going to be remade at a fundamental level by this by this technology. Yes. On the other hand, on the other hand, to what extent do we look at this and say, well, it could actually go a lot of different directions. Like the cone of possibility for how AI is going to transform states and societies and economies there is some path dependency, but in, at the local scale in which we live our history, that path dependency itself is so incredibly wide as like a cone of possibility that really what we're doing now over the next five or 10 years is determining kind of the initial conditions, the initial conditions by which the subsequent dynamics and evolution are going to take place. Mm. And that within, and within the local scale of which we live our lives, the range of possibilities is actually incredibly wide. I think both of these are true. I think both of these are true. And it's possible to, to hold both of these in mind at the same time, that there is a kind of, at the big picture, a kind of, I don't want to say inevitability, but a kind of, again, a kind of path dependency in the ways in which these are structured. I think it opens the question to a certain extent, how much was the emergence of machine intelligence inevitable at some point in time? And to what extent is it evitable? To what extent is, is it something that, that actually has a high degree of contingency built into it? This dynamic between contingency and determinacy is one that is extremely interesting and important way of looking through these kinds, of, these kinds of questions. We have to be able to think about essentially both at the same time. We have to be able to understand the contingent elements and the deterministic elements within, the, within these systems. I see uh, an incredible moment of historical irony where so many of the conversations around AI are focusing on the possibilities of doing economic planning or completing the dream of economic planning. I think of CyberSyn in its original instantiation has the computational capacity of a Game Boy, essentially. It's not a, it's not a meaningful experiment to organize a complex, advanced industrial economy, but right. AI really fundamentally transforms that. Lee Phillips, I talked to on the podcast, his example of Walmart as a functioning planned economy. Um, I'm seeing this very sure. interesting thing being set up where 
American venture capitalists are pouring extraordinary amounts of funds into a technology that would complete the project of the Soviet Union. Um, so I guess right. m- my question is something like, what are the real possibilities for AI to actually do economic planning? Is that an insufficient scope to look at it through? Is that a, no. is that a pipe dream for people on the left who no. you know, should abandon the project of historical teleology? No, it's not. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a pipe. Dream. It's a very interesting question. I think. I think it's. It's one that's become both less hypothetical and also more complex in the recent years. In the stack, the book that you mentioned, you know, one of the things I, I talked about this rather specifically in relationship to it, as you put it, that the irony by which, you know, you look at Walmart planned economy, Amazon is a planned economy. Some of this goes back to what what was identified in the fifties and sixties by Friedrich Hayek as what he called the socialist pricing problem. Right which right. some of your listeners may not be familiar, I'll, I'll try to recap it, is that the argument that was made back then, he's a sort of free market economist to say the least. The argument is that markets are information processing mechanisms, that they produce price and they, they incorporate signals of demand and supply and they output price. I'm being very reductive, but to just to give you a kind of a sense of this. And the argument he makes is that there's no way in which a central mechanism can sense information. Its sensory order, as he puts it, isn't sufficient, isn't nuanced enough to sense information, calculate information, and then push that information back in the form of price fast enough and with the same degree of flexibility and elasticity and markets that inevitably you're going to end up at price distortions, which he calls the socialist pricing problem. And you're going to end up with too many chairs and not enough cushions and too much chalk and not enough chalkboards and the rest of us. So CyberSyn comes in. There's a number of people who are already thinking in the 1960s is like, well, you could solve this if you had enough computational power. Right. And so the irony, which you point to, and I think we talked in the book, is that Amazon and Google produce synthetic price every day. They produce every day. Walmart knows more about their suppliers than their suppliers do. And so if you take, if you imagine Walmart as a state rather than a corporation or Amazon as a state rather than a corporation, forget that it's private for a moment. Just think of it as an economic information machine. It's constantly producing an artificial price based on the information that it's coming in, that it's centrally calculating and pushing back out. And so Lee is exactly right that planned economies never went away. They just, they just weren't things that states did. They ironically became the things that capitalist corporations <laughs> did. And, and so, and so, and so that's the irony of this is that you've got, is that on the one hand, yeah, Amazon has fulfilled the Soviet Goss plan in ways that the Soviets wouldn't have been able to imagine. And that also maybe doesn't, wouldn't have made sense to the Chicago school economists that, that they were the, the, the basis of as well. I bring this up just to say that the question of, is it possible to use planetary scale computational infrastructural systems to plan and organize and optimize economies in such a way that you're linking a large number of producers and distrib- around the world through distribution platforms and artificial price construction. It's not hypothetical. It, it's in fact what we, it's in fact what we have. But the way I would put a spin on this, where I may depart from the cyber sin kind of approach, which suggests like this is the path towards socialism that we're going to end up with is that, look, I think we need to understand the irony of the history that you have this mid 20th century dichotomization between free market systems and state socialist systems that were seen as opposites. They developed different theories and practices over a period of time. And it turned out through over the last 15 years, and we're all kind of living through it, 
that they combined and remade each other in really weird and unlikely and perhaps counterintuitive ways. The conclusion that I draw from that is that the kind of economics that we're likely to see emerge over the next 50 years, let's say, is one that may not be very, it may not be clear whether or not that's socialism or capitalism. It may not be obvious whether or not that's a fulfillment of central planning or decentralization. That may not be the right lens to think it through, right? The, 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 the kind of Cold War dichotomization may not be very helpful um, at a certain point, which is, you know, Lee and I have talked quite a, quite a bit about this, but this is where I would sort of put it. We did a project this year in the Antikythera program, was, which was about exactly this, on updating Hayek's uh, notion of, of market as an information machine, what he calls Cadillacy. And one of the things that we looked at was the ways in which certain kinds of things that currently are priced, that are transacted through a price mechanism, may not need to be priced at all. That there are things that you huh. are, are simply provided as part whether as part of citizenship or some other kind of inclusive arrangement. And there may be other kinds of things that aren't priced that need to be priced. And so one way of thinking about a shift in here is around what the researchers called hypoprice and hyperprice. Hyperprice is when your things that aren't priced may become to be priced, let's say carbon. Right. And things that are priced that don't get priced, you may think of it, I mean, the simple way of thinking about this is like bundling functions with your subscriptions, right? So it used to be that you want 12 songs, you pay $20 and they give you a silver disc with 12 songs on it. But there was a, each song was a transaction, right? And like each song had a price. iTunes, 99 cents per song. Bundling platforms, it's whatever, $15, $30, whatever tier you have. And you get all the songs. You're not paying per song. And therefore, those songs, which used to be priced, are now unpriced. They're not priced. This is what we call hypo pricing. It's a basic function of what people have been looking at in terms of universal basic income, universal basic services, that things that used to be priced no longer need to be priced in terms of the provision of those platforms. From my perspective, looking at that lesson of the history, pushing back into the future, instead of trying to see this entirely through the lens of socialism versus capitalism or centralized versus decentralized, I think the more fundamental lens by which to sort of think through and to try to even predict or to compose or to analyze this is, again, in, in terms of that technology of price. Which kinds of things are, how is price calculated? What is the sensory order that makes that price calculation possible? Because after all, it's technologically, it's based on a particular technological substrate that allows that sensing to happen in the first place. And indeed, this shift of pricing to not priced and the flip of those, I think that's where the, where the crux of it is at, where the action's at. I, I, I really like the project that our researchers did on that, which is called Autocadillacy, by the way. That sounds, that sounds fantastic. And <laughs> I have to say, I have been asking that question on every podcast for the last three years. And that is the most satisfying answer, that there's a convergent evolution between the you know, free market project and the Soviet <laughs> project, where they end up doing the same thing. That sounds gonna really come, fantastic. They're going to come for you. They're coming for you, Joshua. Gonna, you just signed your own. I'm actually, own, yeah, I'm reading, I'm, I'm rereading right now the Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth by Ludwig van Mises. Just uh -huh. seeing what it was so many years ago when it was published, it just feels very surreal right now. Let me just jump in here and add one more thing to your reading list then. Sure, sure. One of our researchers in the program, William Morgan, who's a PhD student at Berkeley, has done a lot of work on this. And one of the things that we read and we're continuing to work on, there was a, a time in, in Hayek's 
work. I mean, he ended up going in a lot of different directions, but he was very interested in cybernetics hmm. and, the in, and the implications of cybernetics for economic systems. The book of Hayek that's most informed by this particular interest in cybernetics is, is the book, The Sensory Order, which is the one that is really looking at right. what are, how, how is it that markets sense information, produce information that they're able to do this calculation and structure. And it's a it's it's thoroughly crisscrossed with with cybernetic thinking. It's really quite interesting in the way in which he goes sort of about this. That was not the direction that he went in. It was a sort of an earlier book. But to add to your list, I think you might find it more interesting than Bundy's actually. That sounds like a necessary piece for this next semester. Thanks for listening. This has been part one of my conversation with Benjamin Bratton. Keep an eye out for part two, which will come out early next week. As always, you can support the show on Patreon or Substack. Subscribe to join the community on Discord. You can find links for all of the books and topics we discussed below in the show notes for this episode. Check out Auto Cadillacy from researchers Will Freudenheim, William Morgan, and Darren Zhu. Stay tuned for part two, publishing after this weekend. Thanks, man.